This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. I learned how to transform my anger, resentment, and anxiety that was fueled by my own fear and what other people would think if they knew all of our story. I started to lean into my emotions and stopped using my never-ending to-do lists to avoid feeling my anxiety. I acknowledged and began asking for what I needed. I admitted to myself and others that neither my family nor I was perfect. And guess what? The more I leaned into discomfort, the more freedom from anxiety I felt. Valeria interviews Gina Nelson. She is the author of Combating Teen Anxiety, Teen Parent Communication Journal. Gina has been a licensed clinical social worker for over two decades and has spent the past 25 years of her career helping individuals and families learn to adapt and cope with difficult life transitions. She is the creator of Combating Teen Anxiety, her proven 10-step method to reduce teen anxiety and give teens the skills to manage their emotions so that they can succeed in their future goals. She created this parent and teen communication journal designed to give teens the language and tools to express themselves with their parents when conversations are difficult to discuss in person. In addition to this journal and working with people in her private practice through online training programs, virtual coaching nationwide, and in-person and online psychotherapy in California and Idaho, she also offers corporate workshops and keynote speaking. Her expertise is in teaching teens and adults to catch their anxiety before it gets out of control and to practice owning, speaking, and releasing their emotions in a more productive way. As a certified EMDR therapist, her specialized training helps decrease clients' negative beliefs that fuel their anxiety and provide them with a new perspective. Her experience as a certified Daring Way facilitator encourages clients to embrace vulnerability as a necessary step for shame resilience and connection. Gina's clinical experience combined with her personal journey raising three kids through their challenges and her son's gender transition is what really helps her connect on a deeper level and transform the lives of her clients. When she's not helping others, Gina loves adventuring in the great outdoors with family and friends. Meet Gina at CombatingTeenAnxiety.com and AuthenticGains.com. Here's the interview with Gina Nelson. In your own words, who is Gina Nelson? Well, I would say I'm ambitious, I'm faith-filled, striving for authenticity, and um, really passionate about helping others. 
What's not to love about that? <laughs> Helping <laughs> others. You know, I get that a lot when I ask the question of the purpose of life. That's one of the answers I get over and over and over again. Like this, Gina, we cannot remove this. <laughs> the thunder. <laughs> I will leave this part of the conversation. So I guess the question is, how did you discover this desire, this longing to help others? Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I think... Uh, you know, when I was even in high school, um, I always thought I was going to go into some kind of level of the helping profession. And I started in psychology in college and recognized um, that to do anything in that field, I was going to have to get a master's degree. And um, I had done a lot of work um, while I was in high school in a nonprofit organization where I was I guess, for lack of a better word, it was like a candy striper where I had done a lot of volunteerism with elderly. And um, I just saw the value there. And so when I got my bachelor's degree in psychology, I minored in gerontology at the time and uh, ended up in some internships that, you know, really uh, propelled me into my master's degree and desire to, to go forth and do this work. Right. So it's interesting. One thing leads to another. And in the end, it's almost like life, life being life, right? Supporting itself, doing what it does. Yeah, experiences kind of guide that, right? And and all of the individual experiences, I think, get you excited or passionate about something else or learning more about what somebody else is doing um, or how they got there. Yeah, there's something about learning, curiosity that is always very close to my heart for some reason. Being open. I do connect the idea of happiness to being open, to learn, you know, being curious. There's something about learning Something that I have not, I never, I mean, I, I never, I could never imagine that existed. Sometimes simple, simple stuff. I think the other day, I mean, it has been probably years, and I say the other day because I'm not good with the timing things. <laughs> so I think I learned how to open pistachio shell with another uh -huh. pistachio. <laughs> Somebody was teaching that, I think, online. I could not believe. I was like so happy. And I couldn't <laughs> believe how happy I was, you know, over something so simple. I don't even know why I'm talking about curiosity and learning, I guess, because you talk about experiences, right? And then Yeah, but I think that's what's so, so amazing. And, and what I love about curiosity is that we need to be in a, in a space for curiosity to show up where we feel safe mm. or we feel connected to other people. Mm. And, and I think um, in a lot of the work that I do as a therapist is I find people who are not in that space as much. And they, on a cognitive level, want curiosity, but their body and the anxiety that they hold is preventing them from finding that. Yes, this is the work of healing, isn't it? That's the journey, the adventure of that. Talk to me about healing for a moment. What is healing to you and what's the goal of healing? Yeah, well, for me, um, it's it really encompasses kind of um, that whole emotional, spiritual, physical well-being. And, um, you know, so when I look at, you know, health and wellness, it's, you know, what, what are we doing physically for our body? How do we nurture it? You know, nutrition and, you know, the physical exercise, all of those things. But then on the mental health, it's how do you balance it with um, kind of the, the calming activities, the things that really um, kind of fill your emotional tank and cause you to really restore your soul, um, even if it's things like yoga or the, or the slower practices that allow mindfulness to show up and self-compassion. 
Right. And, and the spiritual, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it can encompass so many different things. I mean, for, for me, definitely I'm a faith field filled person, but, uh, I'm not, um, attached to any organized religion anymore. I, I would say I'm, I'm just a very spiritual and I, I look at universal energy and all of the blessings that, you know, my higher power and God bring to me in my life and in that work. And I think it involves all of those things. Yes. Yeah, I love that universal energies, wisdom, anything that's universal. The inspiration to me is interconnectedness. Instead of thinking about people as individuals, I just think about as like many universe. <laughs> that's how I see people. And a lot of times, of course, from that's from the spiritual perspective. But then when it comes to the human perspective, I like seeing people as children, including myself as the body, uh-huh. mind. That kind of, I don't know, it like. It makes everything lighter immediately. It's a much more playful and, and I become a lot more parts of the mind becomes more compassionate towards. Uh, I love that. I love that because um, in so much of the work I do um, in my practice with, you know, high achievement driven women, I find that being able to lean into play and rest and creativity are really a big struggle. And it's almost like society somewhere along the line taught them that was not a value right. <laughs> that we should lean into. Yes. Sadly. Right, Gina? Sadly. Yeah. Because what we want is that balance, right? And I just talked to somebody else about dynamic balance. And balance is dynamic. It's a, it's a dance. Mm. It's this movement. I guess this is a good time to ask you the question about why did you choose to work with teenagers? Is that what you specialize in? Um, it's it's a piece of my specialty. I would say um, a greater majority of my you know clients are anywhere from 18 and older. Um, my teens are probably anywhere from about 14, 15 you know, to the 18 range. And, um, you know, it was kind of by default. I'm I'm certainly, I've raised three teenagers myself and they're Uh all adults now. And walking through that, I I really wish I had had, you know, the the, the right answers or the guidebook. I just, you know, I did the best I could and, um, you know, (laughs) asked for forgiveness later, (laughs) I think. Um, But, you know, in my work with my parents and the the adults, I started seeing so um, many kind of mother, um, adult, um, kind of like mother hunger um, bonds and, and just kind of the distress there and those relationships. And so it went so far back into childhood for so many of my adult clients. And so as I was looking at that, I thought, gosh, what if we could, we could grab these young girls when they're teenagers, when all of those negative beliefs are kind of coming to fruition, where they don't really understand their bodies and their emotions and they're all over the place and teach them you know, what's okay and and how to accept themselves and understand self-compassion and all of that. And so I, I felt like after catching people in their 30s and 40s, when they had to go back so many years, it was kind of this idea of how could we, let, let's start younger and, and give them a better chance at not needing to be in therapy the rest wow, of their lives. that's a brilliant <laughs> idea. <laughs> Brilliant. And yeah, right. that's what we need to start earlier. And that's beautiful. You as a mother, as a therapist, you're doing this work. Of course, I, I don't interview too many people, even spiritual teachers, they don't write or talk and communicate with a language that could reach children. But I do I know I do know that some spiritual teachers have children in their audience, but and they sometimes understand, mm-hmm. but it's not for 
all all children. So that's beautiful work that you're doing. And it's a beautiful vision too, Gina, that we can start early. Yeah, well, and just to add on that, when when I started then working with some of the teens, then the piece that um, really became profound to me was that the teens who had a high level of anxiety were coming from moms who had a lot of their own mother wounds and their own you know, kept anxiety and they were people who really were highly successful and had great careers, but they they learned to get really busy to manage their anxiety rather than actually feeling their way through it. And then that kind of fell into the laps of their daughters as their daughters were trying to figure out who they were. And that kind of frenetic energy, as I would call it, um, got passed on. Yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. How do you define anxiety? Mm, that's a good question. So anxiety, I mean, of course, if you look at it from a DSM standpoint, I mean, you're, you're definitely looking at people who have a constant sense of worry and fear and that perseveration, or uh, we call it kind of catastrophizing, where they're worrying about things that haven't even happened yet. Um, and when it gets to a point where it's so debilitating for people, then, you know, you can see panic attacks and people that, you know, of course, have anxiety that goes into social anxiety. Um, it can go all the way into things like obsessive compulsive disorder, which is just a very intense form of anxiety. But anxiety is always about uncertainty. And I think that's a, a really important piece to just kind of look at is that uncertainty is what our mind wants to avoid. It wants certainty. And I think that's where when we look at spirituality or that universal energy, it is looking at things that are unseen, that aren't touchable, that aren't certain. Mm, yes, <laughs> a billion times of that truth. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and yes. so for some people, they can't handle that, right? Because they need concrete. But the kind of the antidote to uncertainty, um, you know, and the anxiety is embracing that that uncertainty and, and welcoming it in and recognizing that you can handle it or, you know, looking at how do we sit in it and feel our way versus running from it or trying to do distraction type activities so we don't have to feel it. Yes, that's a beautiful suggestion. And I know it's also a method, <laughs> therapeutic <laughs> method to be applied. Yes, I think I read this on your website. You said exactly that in different words. You say, the more I leaned into discomfort, the more freedom from anxiety I felt. Mm, that's yeah. one part of that. And then you also said, when I allowed them to see them, my children, see my imperfection, they were more capable of getting vulnerable about their emotions, which deepened our connection and my ability to help them. That's, oh, yeah. I yeah. have to write this down here. <laughs> As a note, it's powerful. Yeah, because I, I think, um, especially when I've worked with so many of the moms who are afraid to show vulnerability, um, their their kids are are kind of um, growing up with a, a construct or a belief that their parents were um, infallible, that they didn't make mistakes, that they had this sense of perfection. 
And then it it causes more anxiety in a teen to think, gosh, I can't live up to those expectations. Um, you know, mom, mom never failed anything. She was a 4.0. She never made any mistakes. Then when they have their own discomfort or their own struggles, then they don't feel safe coming to you um, to be able to you know, say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with because they don't think you'd get it or you wouldn't understand. Right, right. Oh my God. Yes, yeah, Gina, please continue. You're about to say something. Well, I just, so so our own vulnerability are, as parents, it's just as human beings to be able to acknowledge that we don't have it all together, that we are mm. imperfect mm. beings, I think um, brings connection. And that's really where that space that you're talking about, where curiosity can show up and, and, and support and self-compassion arises when we can uh, we can see other people um, in their humanness. Yes. Uh, I was about to say that before. Yeah, the connection between authenticity and being a human, kind of acknowledging <laughs> that we are humans. <laughs> we don't we don't know it all or that we are finite. Whatever it's here will change. So from the, the spiritual perspective, the, that's my perspective, it's called the ego, this false mm-hmm. Identification with the body-mind, believing that we are the body and the mind only, that causes this confusion and the fear. Because it's almost like the infinite kind of making itself so small and believing that it is something small, actually. Not making, it can never be that small, but it believes that it is small. And then fear arises from that because then now it feels uncertain, as you said. And then it's looking for certainty. But it, it's yeah. already, we already are what we are looking for. I know this is a, an old quote, but it's so true. Well, I think that, um, you know, that sense of joy um, and, and happiness are, pe- people come to therapy. They say, you know, I have no joy in my life. I want joy. Teach me how to have joy. And, you know, I, I, what you're saying, it's in, it's within you. Yes. Um, it's, it's a choice. It's a part of mm. gratitude. It's, you know, there's so many things that, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned that I had recently had a, a pretty significant um, accident uh, riding my mountain bike and, and, you know, people were like, oh gosh, how could, how can you have such a positive outlook um, when something, you know, tragic happens to your body and you're going through all of this trauma. And, you know, I just had such a peace about the whole thing, even sitting at the bottom of the hill. (laughs) And I I, I just, I think I can really attribute that just to that kind of spiritualness of knowing that I wasn't alone, you know, in that experience and that I was protected. And I was very grateful to one, be alive and to two, you know, not have been much more injured. Mm, Yes. I do feel that this is what we need to cultivate more the spirituality, which is not different from psychology. That's kind of interesting. In a way, I almost want to say it that way, but it is correcting the mind because the mind has been dwelling in this illusion, which is not, that's not true. It's just partly true that we are just the body-mind. And we are just kind of so overly identified with that. I feel that spirituality is very much uh, connected to psychology. The more I talk to healers here, yeah. and therapists and scientists of the mind like yourself, I see that. Like, wait a minute, there's a, we all come to the same understanding in the end. We are looking for truth. We are looking for peace and mm-hmm. happiness. <laughs> Ways of enjoying, right, this experience, the right. human experience more. So whatever takes us there, but in my case has been the path of spirituality. How do I have done some therapy, but 
very shortly, I think it was for a week even, <laughs> that for some reason it, mm-hmm. spirituality was has been my path. But I see how connected both of them are, science, psychology, spirituality. Absolutely. I think you just, whatever, whatever you can connect to, um, because what we're really getting is, is that deep, deep kind of limbic system, emotion and feeling that's usually trapped, um, you know, deep in the body. And um, whether you get to it through, you know, a trauma modality like EMDR or internal family systems, you know, or it's a spiritual awakening or that kind of experience, um, we need to get out of the cognitive mm, story. Yes. Uh, we, we need to get out of the, the rationalizing and, and all of the things that keep us at this high level that don't allow us to feel our way through it. Mm, yes. Yes, yes, a billion times again. <laughs> yes, that truth. Yes. In a way, it is getting, how can I even put this? It's being able to see the contents of the mind, which means we are not the mind from that perspective. So it's, I try not to kind of medicate the mind with the mind. And I, I kind of, I'm able to see that something here watches the mind, what the mind's saying, the thoughts, the memories, the feelings of sensations. So there's something here that's, it's not the experience. It's, it's having the experience, but it's not the same as being the experience. So it's very close. It's almost, you cannot separate them, but they are, they are not exact the same. Because one is finite and the other one's not. It's always here, mm-hmm. never leaves you. That's my practice. has been very interesting to realize that there's mind and then there's consciousness or God or infinite intelligence, spiritual intelligence, mm-hmm. whatever we want to call it. So they are not, they are not the same because the mind keeps, keeps changing. But there's something here that never changes. It's always, always here. Yeah, well, the mind, the mind just wants to, again, find that certainty and find the solutions and the answers. And again, sometimes the answers are within, as you're describing. Oh, and, yes. Right. And, um, you know, in my line of work, we, we just um, differentiate the difference between what we call explicit memories and implicit memories. And so the explicit are the things that are in our conscious mind. They're the actual recall of childhood. Um, the implicit are the the memories that we don't have in our conscious. They exist, but they might exist in a preverbal form or in our body someplace. And we have to get to it a different way because we can't use talk therapy to get there. Right. That has been one of my experiences with a massage. I had a massage mm-hmm. once and then the body started to do things I never imagined. And it was not connected to the memories. It was just releasing something. So that was interesting, kind of a revelation to me about yeah. the, how the body keeps scores as, as the, I think there's uh-huh. a book about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. It keeps, yeah, it really does. It uh, It records everything. It's just incredible. So going back to the journal, Gina, I'm not sure if I mentioned before, I probably did. Talk to me about the main purpose of writing the journal. It's titled Combating Teen Anxiety, Teen Parent Communication Journal. So so what I found in the work, um, again, um, you know, I I have a, a whole training program that I kind of developed first, and the journal was kind of a secondary piece to that program. And what I found was that, you know, if you put a teen daughter and their mother in a room together, 
the teen daughter's not just going to open up and start verbally talking about, you know, something that's real intimate or, you know, a relational struggle or even about something that happened with a boyfriend or a partner or, you know, identity or whatever that is. And so most of the teens didn't even one, know how to identify the feelings and put verbiage to it. They had a very minimal vocabulary of feeling words, which I might add most um, adults do as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yes. and, then, mm-hmm. um, and then when you ask them to identify it in their body, like where does that feeling um, exist? They couldn't do that. And, um, and so when I created the journal, I wanted to create a safe space so that essentially I could teach just, you know, some real basic things about um, vocabulary and also places that that lands in a body. And then from there, be able to give the teen an opportunity to kind of just have a journal entry. And it starts with really um, kind of positive intention words. So it, you know, for instance, the, the first thing it would say is, you know, from the teen's perspective, I trust that it wasn't your intention to. And then it allows the teen to kind of fill in the blanks, um, which sets mom or dad or whoever the parent is um, up for a place where they're not going to be in a defensive. And then the teen can say, you know, I feel and use the feeling words um, to really kind of help um, understand and bring some context to that. And then when we look at, you know, when I'm feeling this emotion, my body feels this sensation. And, um, and you know, this is where I feel it within my body. As well as um, really looking at emotional um, safety. And so the, the last parts of the entry say things like, I feel emotionally unsafe to talk to you when... And it it gives some context that, you know, if let's say, you know, mom is rolling her eyes or she's um, multitasking and not really present and her body language tells the team, you're not present, that's emotionally unsafe for that teen. And and so if the teen can actually verbalize that and put that in some writing, then what the, the goal was is to be able to leave that entry someplace safe where mom or whoever, um, you know, the parent is, could actually pick that up. And then mom or dad's entry looks just like the the teens, except it's from the parent's perspective. And it goes right back to the teen. And so it's just a way of kind of opening up communication and getting some of the the emotions and thoughts that are so hard to say verbally. Yeah, that's some, it's teaching parents and children to have difficult conversations, isn't it? I call yeah. it deep conversations. but Absolutely. But but that's, I mean, people are afraid of, of difficult conversations, right? And the harder work is being able to take accountability and to apologize and recognize when there's been some kind of a breach in that relationship that needs repair. And um, since you know, a lot of parents don't have those skills because they came from families that, you know, avoided conflict or avoided talking about emotions. Um, so whatever that construct is for that parent, I mean, that's what they're bringing into their relationship with their teen. And um, and this just gives them both some tools and, and ways to kind of get some basic communication started. Yes. How wonderful, Gina. That's what I thought. I think I mentioned off record when I was reading about the 10-step process, 
I thought about, oh, we could use this, all of us, <laughs> not just teenagers. But then, yeah, sure enough, this is the purpose, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, when, so when I created the, the training program called Combating Teen Anxiety, you know, my intention was to help parents know how to relate to their teens. But what I really kind of the underlying you know, um, learning was that a lot of these parents weren't necessarily the ones that were saying, sign me up for therapy. I oh, want to yes. work on some of my childhood stuff. Yes. Um, you know, they, <laughs> they, they were the, the high achievement. Um, they were the doctors, the attorneys, the engineers, the, the people that had successful careers and their worthiness was attached to their identity in their careers and who they were. And what that means underneath is that once that sense of worthiness gets tapped into or somebody steps on that and activates that shame trigger for the parent, then the parent behaves in a way that um, might be, you know, you know, I guess, obstructive to the relationship with the teen, because if the parent gets wounded or um, I'll give you a quick example, like, for instance, um, I'll have teens say, you know, they they start to talk about their feelings with their mom and they say, you know, I don't feel like you listen when I'm talking. And the mom hears, I'm a horrible mom. I guess I never got it right. And so then mom comes out and kind of becomes the victim because their own shame gets activated and they don't have capacity or the ability to just hold space and recognize and hear what the teen's saying. Now, now the teen can't even address what the issue was that they wanted to talk to mom about because now they feel like they have to repair mom. Yes, ah, that's right? sad. Yeah, really sad to hear. But but it's common. And, oh, and I think is, that's right, what's wow. so sad is that it is pretty common. And, and I see that so often, but that's just because shame is getting activated in those parents. And, and so this program not only helps the teen learn about mood regulation and, and how to, you know, kind of combat that teen or that anxiety and catch it early, but it also makes the parents have to kind of go, wait a minute, what are my own triggers? How am I modeling? this process for them. And, um, and so it's really kind of a parallel process for both the parent and the teen who are doing the program together. Yeah, that's really wonderful. And coming from you, that's, I mean, the you, we talked earlier also about having the experiences. So you went through this, this process in order to create a program like this from your own experience, which is really, really to me, from my perspective, is much deeper in a way because it's authentic and it's deeper because it has this flavor of realness of, I've been there, I've done that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. What is the difference? I heard that before, but I forgot. So for clarity for the audience too, what is the difference between feeling shameful and feeling guilt? Oh yeah, great question. So um, guilt is something that, um, that you did. Um, you know, like I said something I shouldn't have. You know, I called somebody a name, I did something and I feel guilty about that, but I can go back and I can take accountability for that and I can fix that and kind of repair that and make different choices. Shame says, I'm bad. Like I'm all bad. My entire being is bad. There's nothing good about me because I did this thing. And, and how that, like I'll say, will show up in some of my, let's say, teens who are 
high perfectionistic, really um, high achievers got to have that 4.0, um, you know, GPA, they fail or, or they have a fear of failing, let's say a calculus test. And they study and study and study, but they still have this kind of obsessive thought that they're going to fail. And then that, or even if they don't get an A, let's say they get a B and it's still fantastic and whatever, but in their mind, that is so devastating that it's, you're a failure. You're a horrible person. You're never going to get into any college. Nobody's ever going to want you. And they spiral into this real like shame storm of all of these really um, heartfelt um, negative beliefs about self. That's shame. What is the cause of that? Well, so shame is usually, if you look at it developmentally, it's it's showing up around age four in our development when um, I like Erickson stages of development, but it's really kind of this um, autonomy versus shame is kind of the, the struggle at that time. And, and so if you kind of think about you know, let's say as a four-year-old, you're playing and you you do something nice for, say, your sibling and mom or dad say, great choice, good job. You know, you're, that was a good choice. You're, you're a good girl or you're a good boy. Um, that results in somebody having a better self-esteem. But if the child does something and they're looking for approval and they either get some verbal response that was completely a shock, not what they were expecting. Um, it's, you know, degrading to the child in some way. You're a bad child. What a bad, you know, bad, a bad little girl you are. Um, those kinds of things start at a very young age. And so when, when shame is developing that young in our life, um, we've developed this kind of negative belief or construct that says, I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I'm not seen. I'm not heard, you know, whatever those are. And then we look for our world to confirm that moving forward. Well, I've been through a lot of trauma, a childhood trauma, of course, that affected the personality here too. But I'm, I remember being very aware of that. I mean, it was later on, almost at 37, being yeah. doing something about it. But I still see this and people around me, like um, they are, they, my family members, the old people, 60s, 70s, and their 70s, they're still kind of behaving like they're, they're a traumatized child. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've worked with 80-year-old clients <laughs> oh my, um, in my uh, practice. Wow. And I mean, it, it, if you don't do anything with it, it stays with you. Um, so it's really, it's really that um, repairing the emotions of the wound at whatever age that was. Yes. Being that, open to it too, right, Gina? Some, yeah, we need to be yeah. open to healing some people. I don't know why I, I keep asking that question. Why some of us are very open to explore the inner self and, you know, become this kinder, loving person so we can help ourselves and others. And some people, they are not aware of their own, let's say, suffering. Because that's what I see really when I see those behaviors. I, I see pain. I see suffering. Yeah, I, I know. And, and you can see it. And I, I can see that certainly as, as people in the healing profession. But I think you just have to remember that um, the, the, whatever the wound is, I mean, let, let's just say as, as a child, the message was very loud and clear. Um, you know, we don't we don't cry. We don't show emotion. Toughen up. Um, you know, we don't we don't address these things. You just keep moving forward. If those messages were what your family taught you, 
then you grow up believing that, you know, it's not okay to be vulnerable. It's, it's not okay to have emotion or to explore some of these things. And, um, and then protector parts show up that says, you know, I don't need that. Like, I don't need anybody. I don't, I don't need people in my life. I'm good on my own. You know, I can trust myself. I can't trust others. So we develop a personality off of those um, kind of family of origin beliefs. And yes, uh, sadly. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you here. And that's why I, I do this. I love these conversations and promoting these messages and sharing them because, yeah, it's needed. <laughs> I see that from my own small world, my family and friends, I wish they could be more interested in healing. So, but we cannot force that process, I know. No, but, but I think that's the other part. I mean, in, in, even in part of my training, I mean, one of the things that we, we recognize is the letting go process in one of my modules. And it's, it's really kind of the reconcile of you can do the healing. And if you're the one here doing the work, you also have to recognize that as you start to change your behaviors and set stronger boundaries with a family system that isn't ready for that, they will balk at that. They will try to bring you back into those old behaviors and those old patterns um, because that's what's familiar. That's, yeah, they're used to it. It's almost like being used to pain. It's kind of yeah. a, a contradiction. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's fascinating how we can get used to it. Pain that is familiar. Talk to me about, I mean, I want to go through the 10-step the process. Some of them caught my attention a lot. Mm -hmm. But before that, you mentioned earlier, you're a certified Daring Way facilitator. So how does mm -hmm. it work, Gina? Yeah. So, well, so Brene Brown, um, you know, those who know her know all of what she does, but she has a, a curriculum. And many years ago, um, she created this curriculum called The Daring Way and trained and certified um, licensed um, clinicians and also coaches to get certified in basically doing kind of this shame resilience work that paralleled um, really two, um, well, it actually paralleled The Gifts of Imperfection, which is one book, um, uh, Daring Greatly, which is very well known for kind of identifying the shame and, and walking through and in, into kind of the arena analogy. Um, and then the Rising Strong book that she wrote, which was about after you kind of fall and get back up. And, and so with that, um, she has, you know, videos and training, um, you know, exercises and things that those of us who were trained can utilize in our private practice with our clients. And I think that that's been really helpful with my clients because when we're looking at dealing with shame, whether we're going to hit it in session with my EMDR or even like a, a, a flavor of internal family systems coming in in the therapeutic practice, sometimes they want something tangible they can learn behind the scenes or as homework. And so from a more cognitive behavioral standpoint, some of that kind of um, leads into it. And then we can kind of take some of those exercises and um, and really understand what are their shame triggers? What are the protectors or shields that get in the way of them being vulnerable? And, you know, what were the family messages they learned? And, and so we kind of go through that so we can kind of um, unveil that um, landscape, if you will. Oh, wow. So it's getting deeper into it, the landscape of yeah. shame. How amazing. Really, right, exactly. And and so it's, um, so that's part of, um, of 
the work that I get to do um, as a certified Daring Way facilitator. Yeah, how wonderful. I mean, I love it all. <laughs> What's not to love about this? Anything that has to do with healing. And, and from my perspective, it's because healing leads to spirituality in, in a sense of knowing universal truth, that you are universal more than personal. So I guess that's what excites me. And, and it, it seems like that's why this is a calling. And I feel very much, I call it even sacred. This is sacred work. This is a sacred conversation yeah. because it's leading us to a place of peace, inner peace. Love that. Uh, so thank you again, Gina, for doing what you do. I have to say this again here because it's something that's very close to my heart. And the reason why is, I mean, from the human experience, because I have been through a lot of traumatic experiences in the past mm -hmm. and that kind of informed a lot of my experiences in the sense of not being joyful, not wanting to be joyful. That's even worse than not even knowing what joy is, but something mm -hmm. my heart wanted to express that joy that was in it that could it could recognize, but the body-mind would block it. There's like a, the mm. protector, as you say, something was just kind of the, the gatekeepers was trying. Yeah. Oh, that was so, it was almost like I was in my own prison. That's how I see it. Sure. Sure. I get that. Yeah. So it's liberating to just going through the, all the healing work that I did through spirituality and then seeing now people like you and so many other people doing this work, like in their own way, kind mm -hmm. of open this up and, and, and letting people kind of see the, the, the blocks so they can let go of them. And maybe that's why one of the 10-step the process combating teen anxiety is an online mm -hmm. course I want to mention available on your website, authenticgains.com. The one that caught my attention immediately was the uh, number nine, the art of letting go. Mm. My eyes yeah. went to it. <laughs> so talk to me about that a bit more. I know you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. We were just kind of talking about that. Um, so again, when when we learn um, to kind of regulate our own emotions and kind of change the dance, if you will, uh, in the family system, the, the other members aren't really going to sign up for this and say, oh, that sounds great. You know, yes. like if, <laughs> if you're supposed to be the enmeshed daughter and now you're saying boundary, boundary, mom's okay. not going to love that. Um, yes. But but what we're, we're recognizing is that, you know, some people aren't going to make the changes. And if it's healthy for us, then being able to recognize some of those boundaries also means that there might be a grief process attached mm -hmm. to that. Yeah. And, and so when, when I say that, um, what I speak of is, you know, for instance, let's say, um, so my, my mom's passed away now, but my mom um, had a lot of anxiety herself and, um, and towards the, the latter part of her life, um, used alcohol as a, as a numbing mechanism. And, and as I became an adult, you know, my first thing was pull away, push away, be angry, do all of those things. And in, in the art of the letting go, it was recognizing um, that you could still love somebody in your family for all of the good that they are and also set really clear boundaries mm -hmm. for what was okay and was, wasn't okay for you. Mm, yes. And also be able to still live in the integrity of who you are as a as a human being. So, like for instance, my integrity as a daughter was, you know, to not be, you know, an unkind or completely um, disconnected person. Connection was important, but I needed boundaries for the level of connection that I could have with her at that point, especially when she was drinking. And I didn't want my kids around that. So there were boundaries as to what that looked like. But the grief process 
in that letting go really came in in the part of being able to to look at is she doing the best she can and you know given all of the coping mechanisms she has and the inability to address some of the things that you know I would love her to address but given those coping mechanisms is she doing the best she can and if I were to believe that which is part of um, rising strong and, and some of the work that Brene taught me but if I were to believe that they were, she was doing the best she could what would I have to grieve about who she could never be for me and I think that's probably one of the most profound, most powerful messages is that as um, whether you're a teenager, you know, looking at your parent and saying, gosh, they're, they just they never get this right. They never do X, Y and Z. Um, there's pieces of that that you might have to grieve. Um, like, for instance, I work mm. with a lot of teens who um, yeah. you know, have different value systems Um again, with their parents, with regards to even sexual identity um, or, um, you know, gender expression, gender identity. And, and if that doesn't align with the parents, there might be a grief process that that child, whether they're a teen or an adult, is going to have to come to reconcile that they may never come on board and they may, may never accept and love you the way that you need for them to. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the grief process for you to be able to let go. Wow, that is a profound message. Uh, wow. Uh, so basically letting go of the constructed ideas we have, how life should be, isn't it? It's almost like this idea that we have that we can control reality. We can control how people behave and the outcome. Absolutely. And it goes, you know, both ways, because when I'm working with the parents, they have their expectation of who they believe their child was supposed to be, what, you know, what their career was supposed to look like, what their marriage was supposed to be. Yes, you know, they have sure. expectations, right? <laughs> yes, sure. And if anything doesn't look like that, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Or if a child, you know, like, like I, for instance, I work with some parents who are really just struggling to separate from their adult college students. They want to control everything. They want, you know, they're like, they're not doing this. They should be doing this. And I said, well, you have to also grieve that they might not get it together. They might not finish their college degree. They That might not be their path. And if that is not in alignment with the, the construct or the expectation that you have or that you need for them to be so that you can share your story with other people about how successful your kids are, whatever it is. And I say that with laughter because, you know, sometimes it is about what other people are asking and, you know, how are your kids doing and, you know, and, and, and that's, that could be a grief process too for a parent to say, you know, gosh, you know, I would have loved, this was what I thought was going to happen. But in reality, I'm going to be really vulnerable. This is not what my life looks like. You know, my kid has taken this path or they made these different choices and I'm just really trying to come on board and recognize and, and acknowledge it. That, that's more of the grief process and the awareness of leaning into the vulnerability there. Mm, yes, which is very much connected to authenticity. Just being, yeah. in, in a sense, it's being adaptable, being flexible, isn't it? It's accepting reality, what's happening, the way it is happening without trying to change them. Although some people believe that there's a contradiction there, that we, you know, we, we must do something if we, if we see that our children are not, kind of developing the right direction or in the sense that they could hurt themselves, then we have to do something. 
But I think they are situations, right? These are specific cases. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're very right. It it is specific, right? And and I think that, you know, obviously safety, um, you know, if you're looking at self-harm behaviors and things like that. Yes, absolutely. We need to address that. Um, but, you know, when, when there, we go back to that word of uncertainty again, right? When, when there's a, a, a need for them to do something a certain way and they're supposed to do this because those are the beliefs of the parents or that's the belief of the, the social group that they're a part of, um, then if the kid isn't doing that or they're they're veering off from that path, then that's uncertainty. And that brings anxiety to the parent who can't control that anymore. It's almost like working with that inner wisdom, our own natural wisdom, knowing what we yeah. can change and what we cannot change, isn't it? I really love that word, this idea that we can apply wisdom when needed. I know it's, it's easier said than done, but... <laughs> well, I think we all have internal wisdom and, <laughs> yes. and like an internal compass. And, and what I find more often is that people's internal compass is going off and it's saying, pay attention, pay attention, big red flag. And they're saying, ah, oh, but but no, this person's really still kind or they're finding reasons to to discount that internal wisdom, as you call it. And, um, and, and that's when we get in trouble. Is when we, you know, that's yeah. when people end up staying in relationships too long that are abusive or, you know, it's it's because they didn't pay attention to the warning signs or, you know, they discounted yes. that wisdom. Yes, yes. I really believe that. I was about to say that to me, wisdom has to do with kindness. I want to be truthful, but kind at the same time. So mm-hmm. that's when I know I'm being wise. I'm following that natural wisdom. Yeah, in the case of domestic abuse and all that, it becomes more complicated, right? Sure. It has a different conversation for another podcast (laughs) interview. (laughs) Yeah, not this one. So uh, we are almost at the end. I want to mention the other services that I found this on your website. Individual counseling, you offer EMDR therapy intensives, corporate and organizational consulting and combating teen anxiety course, which is a journal. Uh, It's on Amazon and also on your website. Yeah, so there's two parts, just to be clear. The, the journal is its own thing. And um, if you go to the www.combattingteenanxiety.com, I have a free mini course there for parents. And it's a, a three-part um, kind of a smaller version of the bigger course that it gives you just kind of a flavor of some of the things that you might learn in the, in the larger course. Um, and then you can access the teen journal and all that from there as well. That's wonderful to know. I didn't have that website here. So now I have it combating teenanxiety.com. Teen yeah. So I'm writing it down. So I'll have those two links on the podcast profile, Gina. I'll have the authenticgains.com and combating teenanxiety.com. So both of Perfect. them will be there. And let's see before we say goodbye for today. Is there anything that you left and said? Any questions that I didn't ask? I don't know. I think we covered so much. Um, you know, I, I just I just love the the idea that um when we look at wellness, it's not just physical, it's not just spiritual, it's not just emotional, it's, you know, this combination of all these things. And to really lean into self, we have to get clear on what our body's communicating and feel those emotions. And if we're running from them, we're never going to feel that sense of peace, joy and happiness yes. that, yes. that you know, we all strive for. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. I hear wisdom there. <laughs> yeah, the integration of all, right? Ah, yes, beautifully said. So before we say goodbye, I do have a few more questions for you. So let me choose yeah. them. Yeah, I'll ask you the, la the last question. I always ask the same question to everyone, but I'll, I'll choose another one for you. Yes, at this time, what do you feel is the world's greatest need? Compassion. Um, I, I think to acknowledge humanness and the uniqueness um, and and really be able to kind of lean into the uncertainty of what people are afraid of. Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it, we're not going to get political, but I, I just think that we have some big issues that are coming about right now. And, and I think if everybody's biggest concern is about wellness and inclusion of um of people to be seen and heard, then I think we need to really be be mindful of what behaviors and what messages we send when we don't we don't show up that way or that we're not actually having compassion for somebody's story. Mm, yes, yes, a billion times yes. What comes to me over and over again is that we can give what we don't have. So I guess mm. some of these people who are still dwelling in certain things, certain, certain behaviors and messages that, are, that don't sound wise and universal, it's because they are not recognizing that in themselves and that they need some healing. <laughs> I keep going yeah. back to what I do, what you do. So, Well, I think it comes back to that, that where we've been kind of weaving that uncertainty. People want certainty and they they grab a hold of things that make them feel safe with certainty. And, and whether that is biblical teachings or, you know, laws or things that they're concrete that they can go, I'm certain about this, right? Uh, yeah. But, but what I'm saying is that uncertainty is the space around that. It's the, mm. that space where spirituality lives that says, you know, I can't see, I can't touch. It's not tangible. But I know, and, yeah, it's here. But, but, right. you, but there's a knowing yes. and, yes. and there's also, yeah. <laughs> you know, a sense of, of a story of getting to know people that we don't really spend a lot of time with that are outside of our oikos of, of you know, a sphere of, of, of reference and, and to know those stories and to, to know humanness might, I think, um, go a long way in compassion for yes, others. Yeah, I love that, Gina. Thank you for saying that. I know, yeah, I actually like that you got political for a moment. <laughs> I usually don't <laughs> either. But that makes sense because you're also a licensed clinical social worker. That would make sense um, for you to get involved in the political. I, I interview some social workers and they, they usually, they're, they're a lot more political. They talk from that perspective. I don't even know what to say because <laughs> I'm not, uh, I don't watch TV or read newspapers or any, any right. of that. So kind of a little lost, but I do understand, of course, the underlying message, the fundamental messages. So yeah. thank you for saying that. And my last question is, what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Mm. Wow, this is a, a big one. Let me think here. Um, I think that people need to experience some level of loss um, to know what love really felt like, um, whether it's an animal or somebody that, um, you know, like a parent or somebody to, to really kind of walk through those stages of grief and also recognize that it's not a linear process. Um, because I think that is really an important piece for us, um, in growth. Let's see, um, forgiveness, um, the art of being able to, um, 
let go of anger and be able to forgive um, really for yourself more so than to the person that you're offering that forgiveness to. Um, because I, I just think it has, it just really unlocks the freedom of that joy and that happiness rather than keeping people stuck. And gosh, what else? Um, I would say, you know, continued growth that um, never get stagnant. Always be willing to open your mind and get curious and, and, and learn. What's not to love about all that? Um, thank you so much for coming from that place, Gina, which I call the heart. It's really the, a place in us that's um, connected with everything else. It knows, it really knows that. So thank you for being you. Thank you for being open to life. Thank you for being courageous, <laughs> very courageous, <laughs> to not just talk about these things, but to to be, to express what you believe it's supposed to be out there. I, I do believe that. It's really becoming not just the messenger, but the message itself. Mm. So thank you for being you again. Oh, thank you. And we'll be in touch again. I'll have those two website links and I'll let you know when the episode is published within two to three weeks. Okay. So you take good care of your beautiful self and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Valeria. Have a wonderful week. You too, Gina. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Gina Nelson and her work, please visit combattingteenanxiety.com and authenticgains.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.